MacCast, Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. This episode of the MacCast is sponsored by Posty. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast, just a couple days after the previous one. Yeah, I know, uh, two shows right in a row, but this one's going to be a little bit different. I'm super excited about this. Uh, kind of came up, I just had this idea, well, it wasn't really I had this idea. I ran across an article recently, I don't remember where, um, and it mentioned a rare Apple product, a Apple product that you may or may not have heard of. And that got me thinking about all of the products over the years that Apple has released. And many of them are huge and popular, iPhones and iPods and, uh, of course, Macs and, and all those sorts of things. And we know those very, very well. We're familiar with things like an iPad. Um, but there are a whole slew of Apple products that have come out over the decades that the company has been in existence that may or may not be as well known and may or may not have been around for that long or may or may not have been uh, widely available. And I thought it'd be fun because I'm kind of into history as well as into Apple. I, I like to watch documentaries. I think I've talked about that on the show before. And uh, History Channel, one of my favorite things. Um, I just love uh, history. And so I thought it would be fun to dive into some of the, what I'm going to call forgotten apples, forgotten Apple products, Apple products that came and went, and they may or may not be something that you're aware of. And just talk a little bit about the history, what they were, how they came into existence, maybe what happened to them, and uh, just have a lot of fun doing that. So haven't done just a really fun kind of side episode in a while, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to do that. So we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about a lot of different products. It should be a lot of fun. But before we dive in, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is Smile. And I want to talk to you, of course, about Text Expander. Absolutely love Text Expander. If you don't have Text Expander yet, if you haven't tried it yet by now, I know we've talked about it a lot on the on the show in the past. It's just a tool that I have to have on my Macs and my devices. I use it for my communication. I use it for my programming. It removes the repetition out of your work so you can focus on what matters most. It gives you the ability to set up little text shortcuts that can expand into larger pieces of text. Um, you can also use it for things like text entry, spelling corrections. Uh, you can use it to make sure that you don't have errors in your messaging, especially if it's are things that you type over and over again. Um, you can make sure that you are saying the right thing so you don't have to remember um, certain things. So I use it for a lot for doing feedback emails. Uh, so I get, as you might imagine, uh, common questions asked on the MacCast, and I need to respond to those. And I use Text Expander for those, and it saves me a ton of time. I can just do a couple quick keystrokes, and boom, I'm saying the right thing, I'm putting in the right information, I'm adding the right links, and best of all, it has advanced features. So you can do scripting, you can do 
fill-ins, which means that you can customize your snippets. You can have optional snippets. So sometimes uh, I might need a short answer, and some answers might have other areas that sort of branch off and need an expansion. I have text expander snippets for that. Like I said, I have little code snippets that I use. And what's awesome about that is, yeah, you can do autocomplete in some code editors, but that doesn't necessarily work when you're posting a tip maybe in a text form on the web. And text expander works everywhere across your entire platform. So it's better than copy and paste. It's better than scripts and templates. Text expander snippets allow you to maximize your time and get rid of repetitive typing things or repetitive things that you might type while still allowing you, again, to customize and create personalized messaging. Best of all, text expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. You can take back your time and increase your productivity with text expander. And here's the great deal. Show listeners, you're going to get 20% off your first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast, TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. And a huge thank you to Smile for their support of the podcast. Let's get into some of the fun stuff. These forgotten apples. Uh, really something a little bit different in the show this week. I'm going to tell you about a bunch of these Apple products that you may or may not have ever heard of. And what's interesting about a lot of these products, as you're going to see, is you might think that, you know, Apple Arcade is Apple's first foray into, you know, video games or doing a video game type platform. Not true. You might think that the Apple TV is Apple's first TV or television related hardware product. Not true. So a lot of these are going to fall into that category, and it's super fun. And the first one definitely fits that bill, and it is the Apple Pippin. Um, it is something that was, you know, a gaming platform. Uh, it integrated with television, and it did all this way back in 1995. Now, you may or may not have heard of it, heard about it because to bring this to market, Apple partnered with a Japanese company called Bondi, who you might know from a few other things, including maybe Tamagotchis or, I don't know, Dragon Ball Z, uh, also video games. They're part of Namco. Like, there is a, a long history um, with Bondi in the video game industry. And so Apple partnered with them back in 1995 to create a CD-ROM-based gaming and entertainment platform called the Pippin. And Apple really was looking to have the Pippin become a platform for a variety of different things, uh, including a gaming, telecommunication, video Etc. And they wanted the Pippin to be this kind of open standard, you know, classic thing, right? Apple's always talking about wanting to create these open standards that seem to never really quite come to fruition. I guess a lot have, but, you know, oftentimes they have these big aspirations. Um, but they wanted this open standard that they could then potentially license to third parties. And so Apple worked with Bondi to develop the first version of the Pippin, and Apple was, for their part, doing the logic board design, and then Bondi was providing the case, the packaging, the manufacturing, 
and uh, the distribution. So originally it had intended, again, it to be just a CD-ROM gaming platform, but when they started sort of testing it, customer feedback started suggesting that consumers also wanted a way, remember this is 1995, so early days of the internet, they wanted a device that could also allow them to connect to the internet. And um, I don't know if you may remember back in 1995, but Apple had this thing called a Geoport modem. So they were able to leverage that and add in support for the Geoport modem, and that was included as part of the Pippin. And so the inclusion of the Geoport modem required that they update the hardware a little bit, moving it from originally what they had in there was a Motorola 6830 chip, rather. Uh, They bumped it up to the new, more powerful PowerPC 603 32-bit processor. So ramped up the uh, the processing power in the Pippin. And so when it finally um, shipped, the full-tech specs were that it was a 66 megahertz PowerPC 603 with 6 megabytes of RAM, and it was upgradable to 16 megabytes of RAM. Uh, for ports, it had a VGA port. Remember, it was intended to connect to a uh, television, so it had VGA, it had S-Video, it had RCS Composite Video, and it output a resolution of uh, 640 by 480. Um, it also had uh, Applejack ADP, ADB inputs, um, but what was interesting about these is they looked more like USB than the traditional ADB that uh, you would be remembering. And the Bondi Pippin uh, Atmark model uh, it was white. It went on sale in Japan for 64,800 yen. It was packaged with that modem and a four CD-ROM pack of titles and uh, one corded what they called Applejack game game pad. And this thing looked like a boomerang. So if you ever see the picture of it, it looks literally like a boomerang. It was a very interesting shaped uh, gaming controller, but you only got one of those. And so the white version was released by Bandai in uh, Japan. And then they actually did at one point do a black version for the US. It was branded as Atworld. It went on sale in September of 1995 and retailed for U.S. $599. So again, think about that. That's 1995 prices for a gaming console from Apple. And they just didn't have um, really a ton of titles or anything like that. So it kind of it kind of suffered a little bit. Um, but it did have a PCI expansion on it. Uh, via an Apple X PCI docking interface and cabinet. And by adding that to this, it would allow you to add floppy drives, SCSI devices, internet, and so forth. But the issue with the Apple X PCI docking interface was that you could only attach one accessory at a time or use one accessory at a time. So you know, it had some limitations that didn't make it particularly useful. Now, it did have 2D and 3D quick draw support and QuickTime support, 
but it could only do QuickTime video. It couldn't do something like standard MPEG. It had no MPEG uh, codec support. So the operating system was actually on the CD-ROM for each software title that was released, and it used up to Mac OS 7.5.2. It didn't have a traditional finder to it. It had a thing called Pippin Launch and a tile-like interface, so no folders, no files, that sort of thing. So it was... It was very basic in terms of how the UI worked. It it did not work like your traditional Mac. Now, in addition to the Bondi version, there were a few other versions that were out there. Cats Media in Norway got a license to sell units in Europe and Canada, and so they built a system. Their system was branded the Cats Media KMP2000. Um, They planned to sell two versions, uh, a basic system and one that added internet access and had a built-in 50-pin SCSI connector. Um, They only made the high-end one and only sold it to specific business customers as a set-top box system, mostly for delivering an internet shopping experience uh, and doing... or. Uh, selling them into hotels as internet access systems. So it kind of never went into um, consumer production for Cats Media. Ultimately, you know, with the platform competitors like Sega and Nintendo, they were making lower cost gaming systems. And as you might imagine, the Pippin actually never really, really took off. Bondi only sold 42,000 units, both in the U.S. and Japan, so that's total. And again, software was a big problem. There were only ever 25 titles produced, um, but one of note was, if you remember, the the great Mac game from Bungie, Marathon, and yes, that's the Bungie that ultimately was bought by Microsoft and produced Halo, Um, they created a game called Super Marathon uh, for the Pippin. So, you know, that was a really cool title. But again, with only 25 titles produced, you can imagine, and uh, that the high price point did not sell very well. And then ultimately, the fate of the Pippin was sealed in 1997 when Steve Jobs returned to Apple and started killing off all of the Apple Mac clones. You remember how Apple had gotten into uh, licensing and, and allowing clones to be made, and uh, clones included the Pippin. So the Pippin was uh, totally killed off. Uh, ultimately, Daystar Digital ended up buying a bunch of the surplus Bondi Pippin inventory and just tried to sell it off to anyone they could get to buy it. So that was another one of Apple's licensors back at the time, Daystar Digital. And um, so that's ultimately what happened to the Pippin. But there you go, Apple's first foray into gaming hardware. Yeah, I bet you uh, maybe didn't even know that Apple was, was in that business at one point. Another business that Apple got into very, very early on, and might have even been actually the first ones, they created the first consumer digital cameras way back in 1994. And that is in the form of the Apple QuickTake 100. 
This was another product where Apple partnered uh, with someone. They were actually made by Kodak, and they had a 0.3 megapixel (laughs) sensor, basically. They took 640 by 480 images. Um, The camera itself had a viewfinder, but it did not have any kind of screen, so there wasn't any really preview that you could see in it. Uh, way back then, it could hold a whopping eight digital images at the highest resolution. Again, remember the highest resolution is 640 by 480. Um, if you wanted to store more, you could reduce the resolution of your of your photos to 320 by 240, and then you could cram uh, 32 images onto the Apple QuickTake 100. So hard to think or amazing, I guess, to to understand like how far we've come since 1994 in terms of digital cameras. But this is where it all started. And so the design, if you've ever seen it, um, looks to me kind of like Luke Skywalker's space binoculars from Star Wars. Uh, it's kind of elongated uh, oval shape um, and... Uh, it actually kind of had a really cool industrial design to it. Uh, in terms of how you would get your photos onto your Mac, they were transferred via a serial cable. And uh, how much would you have would have you have had to pay for an Apple Quick Take 100 way back in 1994? Yep, seven hundred U.S. dollars. So you know, you think that the original iPhone was pricey. This was a digital camera that held eight digital images at three, 0.3 megapixels and uh, would cost you about 700 bucks US. So, uh, yeah, it didn't really take off uh, probably as well as Apple had hoped. Uh, they did make a few other models, though. They continued to make various models and, and upgrade the Quick Take. There was a Quick Take 150 model that was released in 1995. It added a close up lens. And then the Quick Take 200, they moved from uh, working with Kodak to working with Fujifilm on that one. And it added features like finally a preview screen. Uh, focus and exposure controls, and it was designed a little bit more like a traditional camera. So if you looked at that one, it looked more like your traditional camera. And that one also gave you the ability to store images on smart media cards. So you had removable media for that one, so you could obviously get a lot more pictures out of the QuickTake 200. Again, as you might imagine, this was another project when Steve Jobs returned back to Apple in 1997. Yep, it was scrapped and uh, and killed. So, you know, a lot of these things, that was sort of the way it went. You know, Apple, those were the dark days of Apple, those of us who remember and were around back then. And it was probably the right thing to do. Apple was involved in so many different projects uh, in the mid-90s. They were really kind of fragmented and didn't have a lot of direction. And it really took Steve coming back and putting the focus back on the Mac and the iMac uh, to really turn Apple around. So it was ultimately a good thing. But, you know, they were involved in some very interesting early technologies. And they were really, again, pioneers of uh, things like the digital camera. And the quick take was, uh, you know, 
that quick take was where it started. Yep, all with Apple. We'll get back to some of these great forgotten apples here in a moment. But before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is LinkedIn Jobs. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing the wrong candidates for a job opening could be time better spent growing a business. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates worth interviewing faster. And best of all, it's free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 750 million people. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know, every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash maccast. That's linkedin.com slash maccast to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And a big thank you to LinkedIn Jobs for their support of the Maccast. You might think that the Apple TV was Apple's first big foray into the world of television for an Apple product, but you would actually not be 100% correct. Apple T- Apple was making a TV product long before the Apple TV, but it was not a set-top box. It was actually a Macintosh called the Macintosh TV. They made a version that had a built-in NTSC TV tuner and could be directly connected to cable or antenna, and they introduced that way back in October of 1993. It was actually a Mac based on the Macintosh LC500. Uh, Remember way back when, when Apple was making a gazillion models of Macintosh? Yeah, again, we're back in the 90s. This was the crazy days of Apple. Uh, But it was based on the Macintosh LC500, which was an all-in-one case design. And I believe the, as far as I know, the Macintosh TV was also the first Mac to have a black case. And so I guess similar to the Apple TV, right? Uh, If it's going to be a TV product, I guess Apple feels it needs to be in black and not uh, the Snow White design that was going on back in the Macintosh LC days. Uh, Internally, though, you know, despite being on the outside of Macintosh LC 500, internally, the specs kind of matched up more with a Performa 520. And so here's how the tech specs played out. It was a 32 megahertz 68030 processor. It had five megabytes of RAM. It had a 160 megabyte hard drive and that integrated TV tuner. For the display, it was a built-in 14-inch color display at 640 by 480. And uh, the price on this thing, way back in 1993, $2,079 US. So again, as you might imagine, uh, not flying off the shelves. As far as how it worked out, you know, I kind of feel like wherever I saw these, Uh, It was sort of being marketed as almost like a dorm room computer for students, right? Imagine you're going to the dorms. Now you can have a television and your computer all in one. Uh, I think it was also Apple's first Mac product to have a remote control. Um, And you could actually 
press a button and switch to the TV signal, or you could have the Mac video signal. But you could also, and this is really, really cool for the time, you could get your TV in a picture-in-picture window. So you could be working on your Mac and watching TV picture-in-picture. So cool concept, great idea. I don't know if maybe it was ahead of its time or maybe just too expensive to kind of justify it where you probably could pick up a Mac and a separate television, small television for a little bit cheaper. As a result, Apple only ended up selling about 10,000 units of the Macintosh TV. That was all that was ever produced. Uh, Maybe why you may or may not know about Apple's first foray into television. Here's another interesting thing. Apple got into the textile industry uh, making socks, but these would not be socks for your feet. (laughs) This was back in 2004, and this may be one that more people people remember um, (laughs) because it was just so odd at the time. But back in 2004, Apple announced it would be selling socks for your iPod. And yes, they looked like brightly colored tube socks. They came in a multi-pack, just like uh, socks, a pack of six, six different colors. They sold for $29 US. And in that little pack of six, you had one gray, one green, one purple, one goldenrod, one pink, and one blue sock. They were designed they look like sports socks and they were meant to fit a full-sized white ipod you just slipped them in i remember steve jobs doing the announcement he was very as he as he is in his keynotes very passionate about them he thought they were the greatest thing i thought one of the cool things about them uh was that they had a little color matched tag Uh, on the side of them with the Apple logo. So kind of like Levi's jeans or something like that, right? It had a little little tag that stuck out. It had on the cuff this little Apple logo. Um, And uh, they were around for a little while, but alas, Apple removed the socks from their online store back in uh, 2012. I think you can still go on Amazon and find some knockoff you know, socks for your iPod. But um, yeah, very interesting product. Um, I don't know if you ever had had them. I never bought Apple socks. That was one that I uh, that I stayed away from. I buy a lot of Apple products and a lot of unusual Apple products. Like, uh, for example, you may or may not remember Apple made rechargeable batteries uh, in a little battery recharger like the double A batteries. I have that product. I bought Apple's first uh, iPad keyboard dock, um, and it really only had one orientation. It was an odd product, right? But never, never bought the iPod socks. But a lot of people really liked them, and it was an interesting idea. But I think people figured they could probably get socks for a little bit cheaper uh, than twenty nine bucks. They wouldn't be Apple designed with an Apple logo. But you know, regardless, I don't, I don't think they were ever a huge, huge hit. Keeping in the iPod arena, you may think that when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, um, that was the end of Apple licensing forever, at least based on some of the some of the other products we've been talking about in this episode. But if you thought that, uh, 
you would be wrong. A Steve actually did some licensing, not around the Mac, but around the iPod. And back in January of 2004, January 8th, Carly Fiorona of HP, CEO of HP at the time, announced the Apple iPod plus HP. HP was going to be releasing an iPod. And the original devices were actually 20 and 40 gigabyte fourth generation iPods. Uh, They were exactly the same as the Apple iPod, all of the same specs, but they had HP branding engraved on the back of them. And the products also included Windows-centric how-to guides and setup guides along with them. Um, another thing at the time that HP brought out with the HP iPod were they sold what was what they called tattoos, basically skins or wraps that you could buy um, for the HP iPod with kind of HP branding and, and uh, designs and stuff like that. Those sold for $15 US for a pack of 10. And HP supposedly was going to be allowed to also create their own color an HP Blue version of the iPod, HP iPod, but that never came to fruition. That actually never uh, came about. And, you know, for Apple's part, you might think this is a little bit crazy, right? Like, why is Apple allowing another company to brand and sell an iPod? And while it seems crazy on the surface, it was actually a little bit brilliant because what happened was, is as part of the deal, they got HP to preload iTunes and the iTunes store onto all HP and compact computers, and they actually blocked them from installing Windows Media Player um, as part of the deal. And It also, as part of the deal, Apple prohibited HP from selling their own competitor to the iPod until August 2006. So this deal kept them out of the MP3 market uh, until August of 2006. And uh, the other odd thing about this was that HP had only negotiated the rights for the fourth generation iPod. And so what happened was, is this came out and then Apple continued innovating and creating new iPods and HP was just kind of left in the lurch selling the old stuff. Now, eventually they corrected things and renegotiated and did a deal. So there was iPod plus HP minis, uh, iPod photo version and an iPod shuffle. Uh, So they got in on... Uh, some of the some of the other iPods, but it never ever worked out to being a um, a very good deal for HP. At 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 its very best, the iPod plus HP only made up about five percent of all of iPod sales. And in two thousand five, uh, HP terminated the deal. But what's interesting about that timing, if you're kind of paying attention, is that they were still bound by that non-compete clause and uh, had to continue pre-installing iTunes on HP computers until 2006. So they ended the deal and still had another year 
where they had to uh, comply with the with the with the agreement. So, you know, HP iPod that was actually a thing. Coincidentally, also back in two thousand four, another product you may or may not remember happened a little bit later in October. Apple released a U two edition of the fourth generation iPod, and yeah, U two the band, um, and it was black with a red click wheel. It had engravings of the band's signatures on the back of it, and it was a 20-gigabyte model um, and sold for $349 uh, US. So a couple different iPods uh, that you may or may not have been familiar with. Okay, we're going to get into even more stories, a few more things to talk about in the world of Forgotten Apples. But before we do that, I want to thank one more show sponsor, and that is Posty. In the competitive world of advertising, marketers are always looking for an edge to accelerate growth, reach new customers, and get measurable results. Today, they're turning to the best-kept secret in marketing, direct mail reinvented for the digital world by Posty. Posty has transformed direct mail by adding all of the digital marketing capabilities found in channels like Facebook, Google, and YouTube. I actually spent time working in the world of advertising and printing, and I've been involved in working on direct mail marketing campaigns. And I can say firsthand how much work it can be putting together a direct mail marketing campaign and doing it the traditional way. It is not at all easy. Posty changes that. Posty allows you to run direct mail like a digital marketer. The Posty platform takes away all of that complexity and gives you something that is simple and easy to use. Posty's platform is a one-stop shop that does it all for you. Build audiences, set up campaigns with A-B tests, approve creative and track results in real time, and you can really think of it as a direct mail easy button. Posty integrates with your CRM, accesses data sets and builds lookalike models from over 250 million U.S. consumers. And with Posty, you can narrow in on your target audience and reach customers that you don't find through other channels. And unlike the old way of doing direct mail, Posty is fast. Fully automated printing and logistics solutions allow you to deploy campaigns in days, not months. Posty campaigns allow you to attract new customers, retarget your website visitors, and re-engage your existing customers to increase lifetime value. Diversify your marketing and stand out with direct mail from Posty. Hurry and get your free Posty demo today by visiting posty.com slash matcast. That's posty.com slash matcast for a free posty demo. Posty, direct mail reinvented for the digital world. Now, don't you worry, because, uh, you know, Apple hasn't only ever made clothing items for their technology products like iPods. They go way beyond uh, iPod socks. And probably many of us know, or at least some of us know, that today one of the only places where you can get Apple-branded apparel or housewares or office supplies, etc., is in Cupertino at one of their company stores, either at the new Loop campus or I think they still have the one at the original campus. Um, But little Apple history, way back in 1986, 
Apple actually produced a catalog and brought out, yeah, like a printed mail order catalog and brought out what they called the Apple Collection. It was a catalog of clothing, accessories, and products all adorned with the rainbow Apple logo. And it was definitely totally 80s. If you've ever seen some of the image of images that are out there, you know, models and sweaters with turned up collars and sweatsuits and neon colors all over the place. Definitely that whole 80s vibe going on. And they had all kinds of different items and products that you could get with the Apple logo. They had, you know, baseball caps and tennis visors. They had belts. They had kids' clothes. They even had a toy semi-truck with the Apple logo on it, and even big ticket items like a windsurf board that sold for $11,000 US. And again, you may think that the Apple Watch is the first time that Apple got into making a, a timepiece, but Nope, the Apple Collection was the first Apple Watch. It was analog, it was black with an Apple logo on the face, and also that catalog had, believe it or not, an Apple phone. Not a slab of glass with a screen, though. This was a traditional landline phone, yep, the kind you would connect to Ma Bell with and place phone calls back in the 80s. So... Yeah, you know, the Apple Collection, look it up. It's well worth seeing some of the images and some of the things that were out there. That was how you would get uh, get your Apple logo products back in 1986. Moving on to one of Apple's early forays into the music market long before the iPod, Apple tried its hand at a little bit of different personal stereo technology. Uh, again, back in the 90s, the CD player. It was popular, and Apple thought, hey, we want to get into that. And in 1993, they re released a product called the Apple Power CD. It was Apple's first standalone Apple product, something that didn't need to be connected to a Mac, though you could connect it to a television. And once again, they partnered with another company. It was actually an OEM design from Philips that Apple just slapped their logo onto. The product came with a remote, again, another Apple remote, and it was a CD player with battery power that could function as a standalone audio CD player. And the design actually matched the look of the PowerBook series back in the day, and the unit could also connect via SCSI uh, to your Mac if you wanted to, so it didn't have to only operate as a, a standalone product, and serve as a portable CD-ROM drive. And it did support Kodak photo CDs, data CDs, and audio CDs. Now, not a CD burner, just, you know, a CD reader. The product had a dock that doubled as a stand, and that's where the SCSI connector was, and it was also uh, where the battery pack was. Uh, PowerCD could also be attached to Apple-designed powered speakers, and then you could turn it into a little mini portable stereo. But once again, the Power CD was rather pricey, $499 US, and it really failed to click 
with anybody as a portable CD-ROM or a CD player. So I think this is something a lot of times, especially with audio products, right, or audio speaker products, uh, looking at you, iPod Hi-Fi, which is kind of another forgotten Apple product, Apple's first foray into a speaker product for the uh, for the iPod. Apple seems to struggle with really hitting the mark with those kinds of products. And the Power CD was no exception to this. So the Power CD was discontinued, unfortunately, in 1996. So there's one more item on our list to talk about, and not everything on this list is actually hardware. This time around, we have a piece of software. It was actually Apple's attempt in 1996 to build an internet suite, and it was a technology called CyberDog. It was back in the day when browsers were coming on the scene. We had Netscape and Internet Explorer, and Apple wanted to get in on some of that action. And while some web browsers had been had begun adding in services like emails or email or news reading, um, there were not many that were doing it. And so Apple's concept with CyberDog was that it wanted to be able to integrate email, news reading, web browsing, your address book. Um, they even had an option to have drag and drop FTP file transfer built into it. And um, the way it was all enabled was they used a technology, another Apple technology, called OpenDoc. And the power behind OpenDoc was it was basically little apps that could be reused and kind of combined inside other apps. So uh, you could actually take CyberDog, which was one of these OpenDoc apps, and then put a web page inside a OpenDoc text editor or text document, or you could throw it inside a presentation. So these were all little portable objects that you could use and reuse and combine. And it was a really, really cool concept. But the issue with it was Apple kind of set it up to be a competitor to a similar technology from Microsoft. Microsoft's Microsoft Office's object linking and embedding, OLE, OLE technology. And it was also, you know, kind of going up against Internet Explorer at the time. And I think history dictates we know how that all turned out. It didn't really work out for Apple. And I think it didn't help that CyberDog was really plagued by a lot of performance issues. And so it never really gained much support or adoption from users or from Apple. And it just languished and then was discontinued in 1997, about a year after it was introduced. So that was the uh, ill-fated CyberDog and uh, is kind of the last forgotten Apple that I have on my list. Now, I'm guessing that maybe this episode has sparked your memory and Maybe you know of a forgotten Apple product that is near and dear to your heart or you're just interested in that maybe didn't make it on my list. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to record a little audio comment or uh, just shoot me an email and tell me about a a forgotten Apple product that uh, you know of, I would love to hear about it. You can send me an email or an audio comment to maccast at gmail.com. But with that... That is going to do it for this 
special episode of the MacCast. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, before I leave you, I do want to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can check out their software by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you want to uh, get show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And then finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on instagram maccast on instagram and that is going to do it for now until next time i will talk to you all again real soon